talk about stewardship this morning. And the reason that we're talking about stewardship for this month is because we want to start the year off on the right foot. And uh, we don't talk a lot about money or possessions here, and that's intentional because a lot of churches that talk a lot about those things seem to be about those things, right? If you give to this church, then you will be blessed. And so at risk of feeling that it's some sort of prosperity, preaching or something, I have tended historically to avoid this subject. And what I've realized, or what's been brought to me through the collective discernment of others at the church is, John, you actually do need to talk about this. You can't just avoid it because you don't want to come off a certain way. And so if anything that I say this morning seems awkward or a little bit anxiety-provoking, it's because I am a little anxious. This is not a subject that I like to talk about. And part of that is because it's a subject, I think that the things that are closest to us, our most difficult sins are the ones that that we struggle the most uh, with talking about them. We oftentimes dislike in others the very thing which we dislike in ourselves, right? And so I got a degree in economics from North Park University, which is kind of a... uh, 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 what is it, a paradoxical thing, right? Because North Park is like a school that's very not about money. It's very like not about trying to make a bunch of uh, people who are going to go out and make a lot of money. And I got a degree in economics, which is t- typically a subject that it's about that, right? And so, um, so, so I, it's close to home for me. Um, my, my iPad has 10% battery, so you know it's going to be a short sermon. Um, but, but, but we have to talk about it. And so for this week, we're going to be talking about money. Next week, we're going to be talking about gifts. And then the third week, we're going to be talking about kind of how those things come together and meld together, okay? So that's what you can expect. Um, but, you know, this morning, when I thought about preaching about this passage, um, I realized that I actually preach about this passage. If I preach about money at all, I almost always preach on this passage. I actually did it before at this church already. I did it in October of 2018. And so if you're, if you're listening to this and you're like, I've heard this before, um, I, my hope is that I don't preach the same sermon, but you can like download Minecraft or something, like play on your phone, like whatever you need to do to entertain yourself. Maybe check the weather, tell me if it's going to be like last week where I wore shorts or like last week where I got pneumonia. Like, you know, like, you know, just tell me what it's going to be like. But seriously, like, can we, can somebody actually like check the weather? Because I have no idea what to expect. No, I mean, no idea. I, and I think that we, we accept this as a culture, right? We, we think that we know what the weather's going to be like, and then we, we actually don't really know what the weather's going to be like. And I feel like January is a month that I, I generally have a good hold on. January's in the middle of a season. You know what I mean? It's like middle, middle winter. And my birthday's in January, so I tend to remember it. Uh, my birthday is actually next week. It's on the 8th. And because Phil is better than me at everything, his is on the seventh. Um, <laughs> just kidding. He was born in the 80s, which makes him ancient at this point. Um, that's supposed to be a joke about how young I am, not about how old Phil is, born in 89 or something. Okay. But I feel like last year it was colder at this time of year, no? Yeah. For sure. I think in January we had some windshield of like negative, oh yeah, 50. I remember my windows freezing in. It's terrifying. 
And last week, it was in like the mid-60s. I pulled out the power washer, all right? Joe the plumber next door was like, I got you know, I came over to help you with something, but I, I got to get something done. My wife's going to kill me if I don't power wash the driveway. It's January, Joe. It was actually December at that time, but you get what I'm saying. We just don't know what to expect. Go to the next slide. And this is, this is the thing. We don't know what to expect, and that's a real anxiety for us in the world. When it comes to weather, they put up the weather report for me, the next 36 hours, 41, 24, 37, 26, 38, seemingly consistent, we'll take it, okay. Anxiety provoking, we don't know what to expect. And, and, and in, historically, we do two things. We either pretend that we know what to expect, or we accept the fact that we don't know what to expect. But actually, we do the second one a lot less. We, ex- we, we very rarely accept the fact that we don't know what's coming next. The only place in my life that I can think of that I accept the fact that I don't know what's coming next is in the purchase of insurance. Insurance is the only thing that you buy that you hope you never use, right? Except for your annual medical checkup or something. But literally, insurance is the only thing that you ever buy. Like if you bought a new 60-inch TV and you were like super pumped never to open the box, people would think that you're nuts. But insurance is this thing that we have. We understand practically that this could happen at any time. I don't know if it was this guy's fault or the other guy's fault. I don't know. But the point is, at some point, you need to understand and accept the fact that you actually don't quite know. You don't quite know. But so often we do the opposite in our lives. We pretend that we know. We pretend that we have an idea of what it's going to be like. We dress according to the weather report, and and we don't think it's going to rain, and then it pours on us. Or or, or even more, you know, a little bit more than that. So Jess and I, at the end of the month, um, I'll be gone. You know, Phil's gone, but now I'm going to be gone. We're going uh, out of the country for vacation to Grand Cayman. And so that you can't, you can't uh, just do that without expecting it or planning for it to happen. You can't. We had to buy plane tickets ahead of time. We had to book accommodations. We had to get Matthew a passport. We had to plan. And, and, and nobody would think that we're nuts for that. Nobody, everybody would think we were nuts if we didn't do that. But it's possible that, that we can't, you know, that we would just, that we would, you know, get sick and not be able to go. Or it's possible that Grand Cayman would be hit by a hurricane, we couldn't go, or it's po- all these things are possible, but we, we plan for the best anyway. And that's what the core of this scripture is about. It's about planning for the best and knowing where that limitation is, where you don't create an idol out of planning for the best. Because this message this morning is really, really hard for many of us in the United States in a very affluent country to hear. It's very difficult. What this guy does is basically exactly what we're told we should do. If you have a time in your life where you have a great windfall, save. You know how many athletes have great windfalls and they spend all their money and then they're like broke? They have shows about this. That's how many of them there are. 
They get a million dollars or $10 million of signing bonus and it's gone immediately. Just, right? We would say that's foolish. We are expected, we are encouraged to plan for retirement. And, and, and this is what's so challenging about this message for me, is that we're expected and we're encouraged to plan for retirement, but we all have to accept the reality that we may never get there. And so it's one thing to set up in 401k or to set up you know, a pension or something like that for yourself. It's another thing entirely to wait to live until you retire. And I, I want to say that, you know, I, I, I used this example two years ago, or uh, like a year and a half ago when I preached on this, but most of you weren't here then, so I could just use it again. Um, and it's going to sound a little morbid. I, I don't mean it to sound that way. My dad was the hardest working person that I've ever met in my life. Yeah, there's a couple people who knew my dad here. You can ask them. I, I'm, not, I'm not making that up, okay? He's the hardest working person I've ever met in my life. And he was one of the healthiest people that I knew. He didn't go to the doctor. In high school, he had a little spot, and, and he went to the doctor for the first time in 30 years, okay? He was healthy. He ate, he ate right. He didn't drink very much at all. He never smoked. He kind of did, you know, he ate, you know, meat and potatoes like American, you know, whatever, Scandinavian, so he had those long, his parents lived in 96 apiece. Okay, he had it going on. And so he had this plan, I'm going to retire when I'm 71, and then I'm going to live. Until then, he was going to work 60 hours, 70 hours, 80 hours a week. But when I retire at 71, which is the max cap for Social Security, then I'm going to live. My dad didn't make it to 71. But a week before, or two weeks before his 64th birthday, he was diagnosed with one of the most rare and aggressive forms of cancer, and he died a week after he turned 65. I want you to think about that age, though. 65 is an important number. That's the number that most people think of. If I said 65, you'd say, that's when you retire. So he could have retired for, you know, four or five days if he had retired at 65. But he worked his whole life to get there. And my dad wisely, in the last couple years of his life, realized that this was not necessarily the best thing to do. And he started to get extremely generous with his finances. He started to go on vacations more. He started to take more time off and do all this stuff. And so I'm not going to say that he, none of us truly don't do anything until we retire. But he was certainly waiting for that. And so I want to just say, you know, understanding that, you know, waiting for retirement, go to the next slide, waiting for retirement, waiting for this, it's not guaranteed for you. Not for any of you. Because of a guy who is healthier than anyone else I've ever met in my life, who, who did everything right for the most part his whole life, died after a year of, after, a, after diagnosis, it could happen to you. And what about that, that last slide? What if it's just a car accident? I mean, it could be anything. Talk to somebody, I'm married to somebody who works in the ER. You don't know what tomorrow brings. And so, when I exegeted this passage last year, October 2018, you can look it up on the website. I, I, I listened to it this week, so I could not say all the same things. 
I talked about how Jesus talks about money a lot. In fact, he talks about money more than he talks about any other topic. More than sex, more than violence, more than prayer, more than the church, money. That's what Jesus focuses on the most as a topic. And I mentioned that Jesus' view of money and wealth are foundationally different than our cultural views of money and our communally discerned priorities that flow from our cultural views of money. And I even went so far to say that they're somewhat incompatible because culturally we're indoctrinated into enslaving ourselves to the pursuit of wealth while Jesus offers us freedom from the idol of wealth to live into who we fully are. And so that was me re-preaching the sermon. There's a lot of information. Go listen to it. It's the prequel. And just like Star Wars, I hope it's worse than this one. Okay. But I don't want to re-preach it. So, so instead, I'm going to use that as a, as a given. We all accept it. Jesus' view of wealth is somewhat different than our cultural views of wealth. I don't think anybody would disagree with that uh, at a core level. You might disagree with how I said it or you know, what, what direction I took it, but you, you don't disagree that, that Jesus is not teaching us, hey, you should just store up and save as much as you possibly can and hoard it all for yourself. That's not Jesus' path for you. And so if that's the case, if that's a given, I want to go to the next slide. I want to offer you that we have two options if it's not to hoard up our wealth, we have two options to what to do with what to do with the grain that we have for our storehouses. We have two options. Because most of us have grain for our storehouses, at least a little bit. We can do one thing, which the book of Ecclesiastes talks all about. If you ever want to hear about this, just read the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It's basically about a guy who at the end of his life asks the question, was this the point? You can use it all before you die. Jeff Bezos came on a couple months ago, the richest man in the world, or I don't know, maybe he's not, maybe it's Bill Gates this week, maybe it's him next week, I don't know. Neither of them pay taxes, so we'll never find out. Jeff Bezos came out and he said, hey, I'm never going to make it through all of my money in conventional spending. So the only way that I can possibly make, this is actually an interview, you can look it up. The only way that I'm ever going to be able to make it through all of my money is through private space travel. Jeff Bezos was like, hey, look, I got to use this up because I'm not taking it with me. Private space travel, that's the answer. So that's option number one. We do anything and everything that we can possibly do to get rid of everything that we have now because we never know what tomorrow brings. You can think about Jeff Bezos in a rocket ship. Option number two, though, and I think this is the option that is better for today, at least if you ask the authors of the Bible. You can buy something that's worthwhile. You can spend on something that's worthwhile. And that's not to say that you, give, that you don't have a 401k or that you don't have a pension or that you don't have a savings account. That, you know, in the ancient world, there was different metrics. You, know, you had your, your children could take care of you and things like that. We, we do live in a different society. We can't completely go apples to apples, one-to-one correlation. But you can choose to spend on something worthwhile. And what I will call, go to the next slide, living now. You can live now. And this is a great quote by C.S. Lewis. I'm going to read it for you. It goes like this. I do not believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. He's my favorite theologian, by the way. 
I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard, uh, is up to the standard common among those who have the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us at all, or do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. They ought to be things that we should like to do that we cannot do because of our charitable expenditure excludes them. Go to the next slide. I want to talk about stewardship as ownership. And this morning, and for the rest of this month, this is the topic. Stewardship as ownership. Because when we think of the way in which we think of money, we think of quotes like that, well, how much do I give? Or how much should I give to the church? Or what should I do? The question at the core of them that we're failing to answer is a very simple question. Why do we give? Why? Do we give because it's expected of us? Do we give because we have to? Do we give because we want to incur some sort of, you know, asceticism or, you know, masochism? You want to suffer, so you're like, I need to give so that I can suffer. Or do we give because we take ownership of our lives? And when you own something, sometimes it costs something to keep it up. I really want to hammer this home. If you take ownership of your faith, if you take ownership, if this is your home church, take ownership of it. Don't, don't, if it's not your home church, if you're just like here for the open house and you just want to kind of walk through and like, oh, it's a nice kitchen, like, great. Don't fix the furnace, right? But if you're going to take ownership of something, it's going to cost you something. Because when the furnace goes out in a home that you own, it's different than when the furnace goes out in a home that you're just walking through or you're just visiting or you're just kind of passively at your friend's house. It's different. You basically got to pick up your phone and call someone to repair your furnace or you got to pick up your toolkit and go downstairs and find your furnace and try and fix it. Or if you're my wife, you got to get a blanket, wait for your husband to get home. Um, no, but seriously, if you take ownership of something, it's very different. You, taking ownership of a relationship looks like this, right? Does taking ownership of a relationship look like, oh, you're dating, right? You're going to coffee, as they say these days, right? You swipe left, that's ownership. No. Taking ownership, taking ownership of a relationship is a ring. <laughs> you know, I ain't lying about that. Taking ownership of a relationship is lifelong vows. Taking ownership of a relationship, in the words of a comedian who I like, is, is saying, I bet you half my stuff we won't split up. Okay, that's, okay, that's taking ownership, all right? They, when, you're, when, you're, when you got skin in the game, 
That's ownership. When you own a car, when, you, when, you're, when you're renting, when you have a rental car, and, and the, you, you hear that sound, you know what I mean? The, the transmission sound. You're like, well, that's going to be expensive for them to fix. When you hear that sound in your car, what do you do? You cry. Because that's going to be expensive to fix. Ownership is foundationally different. And if we started seeing our life, our faith, our relationships, our church as ownership rather than passive consumption, we wouldn't have a problem with giving. We wouldn't have a problem with our own personal finances because because it doesn't become, hey, I got to... I got I to gotta go to this movie and I got to pay for this ticket. It's an expense that I lose and it's gone. It becomes, no, 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 this is just my life. This is just living now rather than living for the future. This is just choosing to give to those in need. I love it. I say, talk about this all the time. In the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, best Christmas movie of all time. Sorry, Dawn. Uh, best Christmas movie of all time. It's on the wall, it says, the only thing that you can take with you is that which you give away. See, if that is the way in which you claim ownership of something, or claim ownership of your church, claim ownership of your faith, claim ownership of your relationship with Jesus, if that's the way that you do it's not even like giving. You don't say that you give the bank money for your mortgage. You own the house. Some of that money is going to stay in-house, right? You're, you're, you're going to... Grow your investment in that property when you give. Sure, some of it goes away, but, but you're investing. It's different. It's foundationally different. When you think of stewardship as ownership, can I take ownership of this thing? You, can, you, you see the whole world differently. The whole world changes. And so that's my, my, that's my gift to you this morning, that this is how I have started to look at stewardship in my own life, you know who taught me that? Phil. I couldn't wrap my head around this sermon series. I couldn't figure out why people should give to a church other than to, you know, keep it going, I guess. But then I started to think, what about all the things that we do here? That's just Sunday morning. Sunday morning's an add-on. It's great, you know? Okay, great, you come. Whatever, you learn something. Sing a little bit. I'm saying, like, what about, like, what about beds, right? 50 people who need a home sleep here. What about Love, Inc. and our, our personal care pantry? People who don't have things to, like, have pers- basic personal hygiene. I currently live in a house without a shower, all right? I got to go to my old house to shower. It's not fun. What if that was my normal thing? Would not be good. This is temporary. This is not forever. For, for some people, that's, you got to choose between eating and bathing because shampoo's expensive, y'all, especially if you buy Tresemme, but it's the best. <laughs> right? Like, just go through like, all of the things, and, and, and you think that this is just what we're going to do. We're just going to cap out here. We're done. We're like, ah, oh, we're at hope. We're done. We did our thing. We got the beds thing. We're done with that. That's all running. Got to put up some drywall to satisfy the village, but otherwise we're fine. 
No, we're not done. Like, th- this is the beginning. What you are going to see next week, what you are going to see coming forward is that our missional impact, we think that as our congregation has grown, which it has, look around, there's more chairs here than there was. Um, as our congregation has grown, our missional impact should grow at equal or greater proportion. And so it's not going to stop with, we're doing this now, we're doing that now, we're doing these little things. You're investing in something. You're investing in somebody's care. And as you invest, when you become an investor, when you take ownership, it also means you have a responsibility to challenge the system when the system does not use your assets properly. You can't go over to your friend's house and complain that it's cold because you're not the one paying the heat bill. But when you are paying the heat bill, you can complain to your spouse that it's cold. Ownership is different than passive consumption. And so that's what I want to leave you with this morning. And we're going to come to the table now. Yeah, come on, Chris. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to come to the table this morning and we're going to do communion slightly differently because we're going to take ownership of communion this morning. We're going to own it together. And so instead, we're not doing intention because flu season, but um, instead of having servers who everybody comes up to, what's, what's going to happen is we're going to start, me and Dawn, we're going to start here. Thanks, Dawn. And your first person, people are going to come up, they're going to take the bread and the cup. And then we're going to hand the bread and the cup over to them. And they're going to turn around and they're going to serve the next person. And every person is going to serve another person because that's what ownership looks like. It doesn't look like I'm doing ministry for you. It looks like you doing ministry with us. And when you get involved, when you own it, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your resources. Next week we're going to talk about it. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you your gifts. It's going to cost you. But no one that I know looks at expenditures for their own stuff as something that they wouldn't do. When you own it, you're responsible for it. So if you're going to own it, own it. We pray for us.